This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show about television and movies from the ones on the big screen to whatever it is you might be streaming. Uh, my name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me on the show a little later tonight will be regular reviewers Stuart Richards and Will Cox when we'll be discussing the personification of the element carbon in the film Carbon, an unofficial biography, grassroots activism in the People's Republic of Malakuta and nostalgia and the space race in Richard Linklater's new film Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age childhood. But first we'll be joined by David Willing, whose debut feature, The Paranormal Horror Surrogate, will have its world premiere at Yarraville Sun Theatre this Wednesday. Here's a teaser from the film. Can we check for monsters? Honey, there's no such thing as monsters. (coughs) So what happened to me? Honestly, we're not sure can't find any other cases like mine in any of the medical journals. Where did you get those bruises? She comes into my room at night. She pinches me so I can't sleep. Where's my daughter? That was a clip from the trailer for Surrogate starring Kesti Marassi, who you may recall from Wolf Creek, and Jane Badler from TV's V. And we're joined now by the film's co-writer and director, David Willing. David, welcome to Primal Screen. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, David, you co-wrote this with Beth King. Can you give listeners a bit of a synopsis of the story? Because you don't give much away in the trailer and marketing no, we don't, and that's that's kind of quite deliberate because um, knowing the horror audience, they they don't like spoilers. They just want to go, what's the tone and the and the hook. Um, so we've deliberately kept that at bay. But um, in the broad brushstrokes, it's about uh, Natalie Paxton, who is played by Kess Marassi, who's a single mother and a nurse, and she gets rushed to hospital one night with this um, mysterious illness and disorder, and they don't know what it is suddenly all these bizarre and shocking things start happening to her family and her young daughter and she's caught up in essentially trying to save her family from being destroyed. And so what is it about that mother-daughter relationship uh, that makes it such fertile ground for the horror genre, do you think? Um, Yeah, it's interesting because there's quite a lot of films uh, that have looked at that, even going back to to Exorcist, which is one of uh, Beth and I's our favourite films that influenced it, and uh, Ring, the Japanese film. And um, I guess we just get into that pure sort of survival and and protection mechanism. Like it's one thing to have um, uh, things happening to you, but to happen to to a child, just it seems even more horrific. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel that in from from the trailers that I've seen. Um, last week we had another independent filmmaker, Paul Anthony Nelson, talking to us about his horror feature, Apparitions, which came out last week. What is it about Melbourne's independent film scene and the horror genre at the moment? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's quite um, yeah, it's quite sort of big at the moment. And around the world, Australian horror films have a great reputation, and um, I think it's also it's a genre people get into because. It's what makes them fall in love with with films. I know from a really young age, um, 
horror is what made me fall in love with the genre, even though I love huge amounts of different types of cinemas and different eras. But um, And it also, I guess, it lends itself to a to a uh, low budget, the aesthetic of the of the film, you know, action's action's great, but it's expensive to make. So yeah, it's true. I mean, I, with low budget things, you need to get more creative stylistically. And there was another sort of element about this that I thought was quite clever, um, and it's the use of um, something called the Three Kings ritual. Um, and I know, oh. I, yeah, because I, I know like a lot of horror films will use the Ouija board as um, a, the common trope for characters to communicate with the other side or the spirits or the passed on, and you use this different device. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you chose to use that? Yeah, absolutely. Did you... Um out of interest, know about the, the Three Kings ritual previous to that? Or just no, I, well, it rang a bell actually, but no, it, it came from me mm. just watching a little bit of a, um, a making of documentary of the film. Oh, okay, great. Because it was, it was a really big phenomenon several years ago. Um, I didn't know about it at the time, but how that got integrated into the film was when Beth and I were writing it, it wasn't in an early draft and I... I said to her, if we have to have some kind of seance communication scene, which is pretty much what you need in any paranormal story at some point, I went, it can't be an old woman. <laughs> That's the one we've seen today, you know, like or it's it's a gypsy woman or something like that or she's looking a bit witch-like. Um, so that was in part where we cast um, uh, Ellie Stewart, who's a nine-year-old actor, in Melbourne who's phenomenal in the role and she features a little bit in the trailer and but the way it came into the stories we were like when when we realized we needed to have a sounds like how do we do something different and Beth heard about this this uh, three kings phenomenon and we looked into it and it was a really it was a massive hit on the internet but it didn't quite kind of make sense exactly what you get out of it and how it plays so we just took this element of some mirrors and just created our own our own seance um Sort of building off that, but uh, with a different outcome. And so, because going back to budget restraints, how did you go about shooting that scene in camera and without the use of CGI? Because it involved a lot of mirrors, which can be a cinematographer's nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, any sorts of reflections are a problem. And that the whole film is all done um, practically. I'm not, not really a fan of CGI in horror films, and, you know, and horror fans generally aren't as much. Um, so... Scenes that we had an entire day. I think we had about 12 hours to shoot it. It was one of the few scenes because we're on such a tight schedule, we had a whole day to work with. And uh, we're just lucky that Ali was such a great actress, and also um, Matthew Crosby, who's in the scene, and cast actors that we could just really work around the room and get all the different shots we want. And with the mirrors, they actually could twist on an axis. Uh, so we could just move them around to not actually uh, be getting too much reflection and we only lost a couple of shots because of that so you just that was lucky you mentioned the actress Ali and um who's a child actor and there's another child actor in the film too there's also animals they do say don't work with children or, or animals David how did you how did you go with that <laughs> they say that until you work with some adults um and then you go um yeah but that's kind of the thing and it was um we, I mean, we, we saw almost every child actor in Melbourne when casting casting this film. And on the first day of casting, I remember texting Beth saying, how did we end up with all these kids in our story? Um, and they're actually incredible to work with. Um, 
they're all very different in the way they approached approach the material, but yeah, extremely talented, and they all uh, approached it very differently. And uh, they had incre- incredible kind of work ethic and, and stamina, and it was a lot of fun working with them. And we didn't have problems with them, and and the dog was incredible as well. Uh, and and we even had a cat. And I was worried the most about the cat, but it actually did exactly what we needed. <laughs> Fantastic! It needs an agent. Um, mm. and, and David, you've you've this is your first feature film, but you've been working in in the industry for many years. I think you graduated in two thousand, roughly, did you? In from film school, um, but you've made yeah. documentaries, many short films. Um, but this is your first feature film. What have been? Yeah. yeah what do you think of the? Because it's it's really difficult for independent Australian filmmakers to get their work up. What have been some of the biggest challenges for you along the way in your career? Um, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the real key is, is um, persistent because you, persistence. You're just going to hear no, no, no all the time. And um, I mean, the challenges partly is, is just you know you've got to come up with a good good project and a good screenplay, and then then you have to be able to, you know, then the next step is you've got to access finance, which is a really big, big block. Uh, and we're lucky that um, Comfort Gabo, who is our executive producer, came on board and is very, very passionate about uh, ghost horror films and really supportive. And that really just set up that that break. He was the one who kind of went, you know, I'll, you know, I'll invest in you guys. And so, yeah, the challenges, I mean, there, there's so many, and then you've just got to make the film and then you've got to make it. It good and then you have to you know sell the film um so him coming on board really gave us that that break but with this film our approach was beth and i'd written separately several other you know feature films and i said to her i said let's do an indie horror and we're just going to make this film happen we're not going to go down the traditional path it's like this film is going to happen and you know that took six years in the end uh but we um we got there and part of that is just sheer doggedness and you're going to hear no, you're going to be have obstacles. You just have to keep finding a way through those. Well, well done. It's a massive achievement. Um, we've been speaking to David Willing about his new feature film, Surrogate. The film premieres this Wednesday at the Sun Theatre in Yarraville. Um, was there a particular reason for that venue, by the way, David? Um, it's a, a couple of things. I mean, I'm, I'm a local. I live just down the road in Seddon from Yarraville. It's a beautiful art deco cinema. Uh, apparently it has some ghosts in it and, the reason we're there is uh, Krista Jansen, who, who runs marketing, is she saw the film early on and has really championed it for us. You know, she saw its potential. So she offered up to do the, the premiere there. And just to talk some more screens, it, actually, it sold so well in the, in the first week. We actually outsold Batman and Morbius and the other films. So they've now put on an additional three screenings across, sorry, four screenings across five nights. Um, that are running at some theatre. So that starts on the, the Wednesday the 6th and we go through till Tuesday the 12th. And the other exciting news is today, Thornbury Picture House in Thornbury, fine enough, um, they've just picked up the film to run a couple of screenings as well. So um, we're really liking these small independent cinemas and working with them. They're so important to the industry here. If you'd like to head along, go check out Thornbury Picture House and Sun Theatre and get yourself a ticket to Surrogate and it'll commence a regional release this month with more information on screenings to come. Thanks, David. You're listening to Triple R's film and television program, Primal Screen. I'm now joined in studio by critic, writer and COVID recoverer, Will Cox. How 
today, Will. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Lisa. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. Good. It's good to have you here. I am fully recovered. It's fully recovered. It's lovely to have you in studio. And joining us via Adelaide Link is lecturer in screen studies, Stuart Richards. Hi, Stu. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, we love Again. having you. And thanks for hosting last week. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It was lots of fun. Oh, good. Um, well, with carbon in the news every day, you'd think we'd know everything there is to know about this pervasive element. Carbon credits, carbon footprints, carbon offsets. But outside of the headlines, how much do you really know about this highly politicised element? Well, the new documentary, Carbon, the unauthorised biography, reveals the paradoxical story of the element that builds all life and yet may end it all. World-leading scientists, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, tell the intimate story of the element that made the earth and everything in it. Carbon is part of the air, the ground, the plants and the animals. It makes coal and diamonds. It built the planet and, as its concentration swells in the atmosphere, it is now also cooking it. Narrated in first person by Australia's Sarah Snook, who you'll know from Succession, this documentary from Emmy Award-winning Australian company Gene Pool Productions and Canadian filmmakers Handful of Films tells the story of carbon from its unlikely creation in superheated violent cosmic forges to its endless cycling through photosynthesis, minerals, plastics and the very air we breathe. Here's a clip. If I were to fall in love with an element, it would have to be carbon. Carbon's the life of the party. Carbon's just annoyingly good at everything. How can she be so versatile? Solids and liquids and gases because of carbon energy. Life has become longer, health's better, all because of this sort of free gift. So how did I come to be the most talked about but least understood element on Earth? The levels of carbon pollution have increased dramatically. It's not carbon's fault. We know that carbon dioxide is building up. It's going to lead to coastal flooding, droughts, storms. It's the way we are using carbon. It's not carbon herself. And we're approaching a tipping point. Carbon is profoundly important in the universe. She is what makes us possible. Builder or destroyer, which do you want me to be? That was a clip from Carbon, the unauthorised biography, in where the element carbon is personified and given a gender, presumably to simplify complex issues. Uh, Stuart, how did you find this unorthodox approach to science? Did it drive you up the wall like it did me? (laughs) Yeah, it's an odd film. It's an odd film. Uh, I mean, I have my notes here, and the top one is, why does carbon have a gender? Yes, exactly. Why is she versatile? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't even know what how to begin with this because it's so ambitious. And I think it's very similar with another film we're talking about uh, later today about Malkuda, where it's taking these really quite abstract concepts of climate change and environment and, you know, what does it mean to be in this world, right? And those ideas can so easily be boring and dull and just, you know, I mean, I failed year 10 chemistry. So, like, I, I just, I don't get any of this stuff. But And did, did the, uh, this approach help you understand it more? Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, it, I can see what they're doing where with this anal- analogy of Sarah Snook pretending to be carbon and she's versatile, she latches onto people and she's she's so effective and changes things. But the moment th- even the, the interviewed uh 
academics in this start talking about COVID as a person. I'd love to date carbon. Sorry, not COVID, carbon <laughs> as a person. Yes. Um, it just lost me and I just didn't get it. It's like, interesting, Stewie, that you I- mentioned, it's interesting that you mentioned year 10 science classes because this feels like something that they'd show us in year 9 or 10 science to make us engage with it. And it did not did not mm. engage me either <laughs> at all. It yeah, was... I mean, I, th- I actually think that's the aim of this. I think this is aimed at a younger audience um, who are learning about this stuff. I mean, there, there's the section on photosynthesis, which initially I was like, yeah, I get photosynthesis now. And then they started talking about it like it was a disco. Yeah. And I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> Why? I just, it's... <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It does remind me of those coming of age, um, like was it where do I come from or what's happening to me? Do you remember those documentaries? Yeah, those those funny animated documentaries we had to watch as children. It's the kind of material I think that science guys, I'm sure this time listening, I shouldn't be too disparaging, but science guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson will will find uh, funny, you know. And then there's there's lines in it like the one that was just in that clip. If I were to fall in love with an element, it would be carbon. What do you mean? What does that mean? Uh, yeah, I actually, I really, it really bothered me the genderizing the of, of the, of the yeah. carbon element because in a world of pronouns, I didn't just did not enjoy that. And I understand its intention, which was noble. It became more irritating and self-conscious for me, mm. though, and it took away from the seriousness of the issues the documentary raised. Yeah. Carbon loves to party. Carbon's promiscuous. I mean, well, I was like, oh, it was kind of off-putting. Efforts, um, it made me to, deeply uncomfortable. Efforts to talk about the periodic table as a party where everyone is hooking up yeah. don't work because no one is hooking up here. No. This is, this is not a, a, a very a sexy kind of subject. It's not sexy. So it's a strange and attempt to sexualise it. It is. And it also got me it. thinking about gender politics rather than environmental concerns, which is what the film should be about. Yeah, when they're like, oh, she's a bad girl, Carbon. I'm like, yeah. What? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like to, to def- in defense of the film, you know, I found it incredibly illuminating personally. I did learn a lot, and I am very proud of these Australian productions being made about climate change, like River Will, which we reviewed a few weeks about, uh, back. They are beautiful to look at and listen to, and they're poetic, and they simplify and distill a lot of the noise around the issues of climate of the climate crisis, and they try and hone in on one aspect of it. To make it more understandable, I suppose, and to take it out of the political sphere, which I think a lot of audiences will respond to positively, and I think that that's that's a welcome thing. I I just think that they can also have the opposite effect, though. They've got to be careful because they can make they can turn them into spectacle or farce, and and I'm just mm. not sure where this one ends. What do you think, Stu? I think there are some moments of. Um, quite amazing um, interviews by a lot of these uh, professors. And I must note that um, I really loved that this wasn't a STEM doco where it was just men talking. There were a lot of um, really intelligent women speaking in this. And I really love that that um, uh, was a very kind of clear thing that was happening in this doco. And I had a few quotes um, that were sort of spoken towards the end, which I thought were, pretty profound where, um, you know, it's not carbon that's bad itself, but it's sort of our misuse of this fundamental building block of life and how our own existence is not a given. Um, and they go into, you know, what coal is and and, um, and how sort of all of these layers of earth, you know, demonstrate different periods and eons of this planet 
And, you know, when future, uh, you know, um, beings or whatever sort of look back at our time, we're going to have a layer of plastic. That's right. As one thing that we're leaving behind, which is pretty heavy, I think. So even though there are moments of fast in this, there are also lots going for this documentary. And for all the personification um, as, of carbon as a as a, a hot woman, which is, yeah, as we said, very uncomfortable, um, there's a line right towards the end that I've written down from a First Nations woman saying, this land is made of the dust of our ancestors, which is just such a beautiful poetic line that's far more potent i think than any of the kind of playful uh stuff that they go for early in the film and i don't know why that and what you were saying Stuart, are way down the back end of the film mm. um because it's it really threw me off it was quite an effort to get to that point i i i, really, yeah. I also really appreciated them yeah as you said Stu, talking about um the origins of coal and coal mining um, and fossil fuels, essentially, and taking us there with the miners. That that mm. footage was was really great, as was the discussion around plastics and how it's plastics are such a um, valuable resource that we are just disposing of um, willy nilly, and it's going to be a demise. Um, I, I did find. With these sorts of documentaries, there's this tendency or perhaps a need for films like this that are dealing in these doomsday scenarios to end on a high note. And and this is nothing new. Michael Moore has been doing it for decades um, and they always sort of offer you this alternative vision of the future at the end to make you sort of leave the cinema or leave your armchair feeling okay about the fact that we are at a tipping point. Um, and I did feel that this film at the end, there, there's a little bit of greenwashing is what I felt um, because there's this they felt maybe the pressure to offer some sort of resolution to a problem that is just so big and so complicated that they possibly can't Um, and I don't know that I mean they're talking about renewables specifically solar uh, and they don't, but there's no sort of critique of solar and the fact that solar actually does rely on fossil fuels uh, to produce panels uh, and batteries mm. and lithium. There's no discussion around that. Just that oh, solar is the answer. Solar can replace hazelwood. Um, I, I think that um, you know renewables are certainly a step in the right direction. They're definitely the lesser of um, two evils. But I, I just thought that that was a little bit um, too neat. Uh, and not thoroughly analysed. I think the problem is that it's so broad, like you just said. They say near the beginning of the film, 90% of everything we see is carbon, everything in nature, basically. That's an insanely broad focus Mm. for a 90-minute film, a discussion of everything in nature. Yes, it's true. So it gets engaging when you narrow it right down and you start talking about the bits under the ground, the, the coal mines in Mongolia, evidence of... Uh, ancient life in the Pilbara, it, that's when it gets interesting. That's the real story. So I think there's a real story yeah. in there somewhere. It just uh, This film doesn't really find it. Yeah, maybe it would have done better as a series. But it, look, it's got mm. wonderful production values. It has uh, music from, I think, the Canadian Chamber Orchestra um, and music from uh, singer, songwriter and violinist H- Hannah Epperson, whose song Rebirth features at the end of the film. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
Well, Armageddon arrived in the Victorian coastal town of Mallacoota on New Year's 2019 by way of the Black Summer bushfires. The iconic images of its residents and tourists huddled on the foreshore as a 200-kilometre-long firefront bore down upon them made the remote community the international face of an environmental catastrophe. As thousands of people trapped on Mallacoota's beaches were evacuated, the whole world witnessed Australia's first climate change refugees. Weeks later, those traumatised evacuees returned to a community devastated by bushfire, only to be hit by the double whammy of COVID-19. With Mallacoota's economy in ruins, its environment scorched and many of its residents homeless. People's Republic of Mallacoota tells the story of a regional community whose lack of government support kickstarts a grassroots revolution to rebuild their lives, rehabilitate their environment and reinvent their community. Produced by Renegade Films for the ABC, People's Republic of Mallacoota is a six-part observational documentary series chronicling what happens when the citizens of a divided, disenfranchised and bushfire-ravaged Australian community roll up their sleeves, take charge of their own future and seek to rebuild their town. Here's a clip. The recovery from the bushfire for Mallacoota is going to be different than any recovery from any bushfire ever before. Mallacoota is always run a little bit differently to other more conventional places. We did declare the Mallacoota People's Republic open. The last thing you want to govern you is a government department. Just the last person you want to be in charge of is a politician. Brooke had lost her house, Lisa had lost her house, Max's mum's house had gone. We decided that what we needed was a recovery committee. You can't leave it to the bureaucracies to lead you out of this. No agency can suddenly make 120 homes appear. We don't want people telling us what to do from Canberra. Now we've got blokes here like this, pissing in their pockets. We feel we know best about what we need. We are having a recovery association election. Everybody in Mallacoota is talking about the election. Do you like my big dinghy bell to get your attention? There'll be no chance that they'll choose me. (laughs) That's for you. There have been issues in the past that have been incredibly divisive. Those divisions still linger. Put a fire trail in and burn it back. You do not care about the animals. Well, that's not the case at all. This town can be very harsh. If these guys were doing their job properly, we wouldn't have had this fire in the town. If it can find a united voice, that's the only way to go. Well, The People's Republic of Mallacoota is released tomorrow on ABC, but Will, we've been privy to the first four episodes. How do you think these mavericks will fare as their story unfolds in the coming weeks? Oh, I, I don't know. It's got the, um, it's got the kind of setup of a reality show, doesn't it? It I does, th- yeah. It's got a, there's a microcosm kind of group with social conflict and, and there's a vote. Yep. It's got everything, you know, for that kind of <laughs> That's true, but it's not Survivor. <laughs> no, but that's what it almost feels like. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not, not in, you know, in the game show sense of things, but yeah. in the, um, the drama, you know. It's either that or it's a sea change style kind of quirky small town dramedy, which I think this would fit really well if they wanted to make a drama out of that. But I, yeah, I'm finding it really engaging. I'm, I'm a few episodes in and, and um, it's, it's very effective. If quite harrowing at times. Did you, Stu? Do you are you that familiar with the with the town Malakuta before seeing the series? Yeah, I've never been there, um, but a lot of friends growing up would holiday there. Uh, we were always an Apollo Bay family growing up. Um, 
so we always went there. Uh, but um, I am familiar with the town and how it, it's quite isolated. Um, or it, it seems quite isolated. Well, one road in um, and one and, and, yeah. and out. Yeah. Well, that's part so, of the issue of the show mm. too, isn't it? That it's three three and a half hours away from its council, which is in Bansdale. Mm. So it's part of East Gippsland. Um, but it's being so isolated from their council they felt that they had to do something mm. for themselves um, in, yeah. the, in the recovery process. Yeah, it's. Um, I loved this. I really, really loved it. I, um, As a documentary, it's fantastic because the participants they've chosen to represent the community, it, all of them are so fascinating. Yeah. Um, and they speak really well and... Um, and we were talking about sort of the last film where it's quite a challenge to sort of make climate change relatable or make these big ideas about existence and being with the land and, and coping with, an, with a changing environment relatable. And this does it really, really well, where just that anguish of um, losing your home and that just slow, awful recovery that just takes so long um, and how bureaucracy is just so, such a challenge. Crushing um, bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. And I, at first I, um, I, I, was, I was watching the episodes and I was writing notes and so I had this one question of like, what about climate change? Because it's not really discussed in mm. the first few episodes, but when episode four hits, that's when it, it really sort of gets into its stride and... Um, and really talks about, like, this is climate change, this disaster, this awfulness, people losing their homes and their family and their their pets and just that imagery, like, that is climate change. And, and um, So, yeah, it's a great doco. I agree. Um, and that just on that climate change stuff, there's, there's also these sort of uh, debates happening within the town. There are those that are saying, okay, we need to backburn and build fire breaks, and there are others saying, but this is why we're in the situation we're in because we've damaged our environment. We need to leave the environment alone. And the environment is growing back. Like it's, it's regenerating, but it's a threat to many of them. So there's this dilemma there and you don't, mm. and it's presented in a way that's um, even handed. You don't know what the answer is. This is mm. the dilemma of the times that we're living in. Um, there's a national story here too. I was listening to producer Lucy McLaren on Breakfasters this morning talking about flat pack democracy where people in regional towns in the UK stopped electing members of local parties in the town. Instead, they started electing local independents to represent them at the federal level because they intimately understood local issues and what was needed from the federal government. So I wonder if it'll have wider ramifications, perhaps in other regional towns affected by the climate catastrophe, you know, like the flooded towns in northern New South Wales and the southeast corner of Queensland. And New South Wales and Canberra have clashed over flood response and funding, including the issue of sending in troops to help with the cleanup, as well as the funding to help people return home or rebuild with the federal government. Um, and the federal, sorry, federal government has just refused. It's, it's now just a state response. Um, and I think this is a um, an interesting sort of insight into um, how smaller communities are having to, um, you know, figure out their own response. And it, and it sort of happened during the pandemic for us too, where the states were left to um, respond to the pandemic, not the federal, the federal government sort of threw their hands up and then criticised from the sidelines. And I feel that this is a similar thing that we're seeing playing out in terms of uh, climate change. And it's wonderful that somebody is documenting it, you know, like this. Did you feel the same? 
Yeah, no, I think you've you've said it all there. Really, I I did think it's a really effective way of telling the story. Is 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 one character in particular, the documentary photographer. Um, yeah, she's really great. Really articulating why it's an important document. You know, mm. the idea that she's capturing these images. She compares it to Pompeii. She says, yeah. well, "I'm, you know, we're going to have these artifacts and, and, and a sort of vague understanding of this for generations, but these images that she's taking and that, that, that this documentary is recording um, are going to help us understand it, make sense of it." It was interesting too that of the you mentioned earlier, Stuart, um, that there were really interesting characters like you've mentioned, Will, just there, and um, and this the 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 town itself has this really interesting history. Henry Lawson used to go there to dry out at the turn of the century, um, and then and then it sort of evolved um, from this sort of really isolated. Which is still is isolated town, but to, to it attracted farmers, and then it was the abalone divers, and then artists, and then the sea changes coming in from interstate, um, and and even um, people like Uncle Bruce Pascoe, who's who lives there, and he, he, most of you will know as the author of Dark Emu, um, but he's there on hand also to offer that in some of the indigenous histories of the area. So it's a, it's a area that's really rich in history and um, in people, um, and so it's. A kind of a, a wonderful microcosm for Australia, isn't? Did you think the same? No, I, I did. And um, it, one kind of common theme throughout the, the the series is how divided the community there historically is. But it's going to be interesting with the final few episodes just to see sort of how they over, overcome that divide. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, which I did note um, with this series, is how beautiful it was. And it's, it's this almost ironic sense of beauty where with such devastating impact of the bushfires, these, you know, we have the photographer taking these stunning photographs. There's a scene where they're looking at these metals and how, like, the, the colouring of the metal has changed because of the fire. And I think the photographer likens it to a landscape. Um, and we get all of these aerial shots of the the, the devastation and, it's awful, but at the same time, it's beautiful as well, which I think is a really just sort of a side effect of this series, which I noted. It's interesting because a lot of um, the films over the past few weeks that we've discussed have dealt with the devastation of the climate crisis. And tonight we talked about uh, carbon. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the film River, which is about our dying rivers in the world and what the human impact has had on them. But again, they're really beautiful, but they're they're, and they're stunning to look at. I do worry when we make them so beautiful um, that we are, um, what's that word? Uh, romanticising. Well, we're romanticising and uh, almost fetishising these dev- <laughs> this devastation. It's like for the IMAX audience or something, you know? Um, oh, I don't think that this not really... this Not this series, but I, I, would, I would say River mm. and Carbon definitely. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know? River did that a yeah. lot. River yeah. for sure. River really felt yeah. like an IMAX film or a screensaver, yeah. as I think I <laughs> said a couple of weeks ago. But but you're right, not this film. This film, I don't know. I just think there's something of a question mark for me over the beauty of these films, but maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe that just will make people watch and pay attention. And Renegade Films, who are behind this, do really quality work, and and it shows here as well. Um, People's Republic of Malakuta is uh, the six-part series, and that's what we've been talking about. It commences tomorrow night at 8pm on ABC and ABC iview. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. That was Donovan with the 1968 track Hurdy Gurdy Man, which features in Richard Linklater's new rotoscope film Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, which has just been released directly to Netflix. The movie is an animated autobiographical fantasy set in a suburb of Houston in 1969. It follows fourth grader Stan, voiced by Milo Coy, who is recru- recruited by NASA for a secret trip to the moon just ahead of the historic Apollo 11 mission. Here's a snippet from the film's trailer. Where's our kid? Mission? For what? We accidentally built the lunar module. A little too small. How'd that happen? Listen, are you good at math? Yeah. Do you get a perfect 100 on every test? No. Okay. We need a kid like you to test this accidentally smaller version on the lunar surface and soon. Stan, you're our only hope. Okay. Great. Let's forget about all this for now. We'll come back to this part later. First, let me tell you about life back then. Living in the Houston area in the late 60s, it was a great time and place to be a kid. But the world was changing, and so was how we saw ourselves in it. Right on. Mom, is that one a hippie? Yeah, yeah, that's a hippie. This is a covert operation. That means it does not exist. No one can know about this. Not your parents, not your brothers, not your sisters. No one. Three, two, one. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. Ignition sequence starts. You may or may not have recognised Jack Black voicing the adult Stan who warmly reminisces about the joys and hardships of growing up in America during the 60s space race in a way that turns a telescope of time into a microscope, bringing childhood back with a fanatical profusion of remembered details set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War and the hippie movement, but contained within the safety of white middle-class America. Stewie, was that how you remember the 60s? Well, I wasn't born, um, but uh, if I was, probably I would have remembered just like that. Um, yes, um, it's a good film. Um, I think it's really cute. Um, I think there are two films happening at once that I'm not sure if they gel really well. One of them is we're kids in the 60s, um, this is what we do. And the other one is this imaginary space trip that he takes and it's almost like we kind of we have the space trip being set up and then here's a solid chunk of the film where that's not discussed and they're just kids in the 60s and then, bam, we return to it just at the very, very, very end. That's and- interesting because I thought that it was slightly less than one film in there, the, <laughs> the mix of two. Because I love the story of the kid headhunted to go to space on Apollo 10 and a half. It starts really promisingly, promisingly but... Then has he, as Jack Black says in that trailer, it's sidelined for 45 whole minutes while they just list things from the 60s. It's just a catalogue of memories, which is simultaneously personal and I think just extremely broad, extremely common. It's it's sort of every baby boomer's repertoire 
of nostalgia. Yeah. Although I've got to say, so I'm a um, a late Gen Xer, early millennial. I'm born like right like at the at the end of 1980, mm. um, and I, I just found it remarkable how relatable I found 1960s white middle America was, given that you know I'm a migrant. Australia, Australian growing up in the 80s, early 90s. Um, you know, I related to heaps of the stuff that he was sort of listing, as you say, Will. Like, it did lack narrative uh, and it was heavy on nostalgia, but I found like it was a world that I was really happy to inhabit for yeah. an hour and a half. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I wasn't there for the Vietnam War, but the Gulf War was happening in the background of my mm. childhood. Um, I watched all those reruns. I mean, he, he doesn't yes. just say I loved, you know, he doesn't just say we all sat around the TV and enjoyed these TV shows. He lists like about 30 TV shows from like I Love Lucy yeah. to the Munsters to but the Adams Family. That's kind of what I mean about it not being very specific because yeah. it simultaneously is. But also, yeah, those shows were, I mean, I'm, I was born in 87. Yeah. And in the end of the 90s, 30 years after this, those shows were still being repeated. Still being repeated. And my life was pretty similar, I yeah. think, in a lot of ways. Mm. Me too. I wasn't too. washing my feet with petrol, but no. a lot of it was very similar. <laughs> no. So I did actually enjoy it. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I laughed a lot. Um, and it's very funny. The latchkey kid stuff is very funny, uh, but it's an oddly undisciplined mm. mix, I thought. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, one thing I really loved about it was how this very heavy political material um, is kind of in the background and they're picking up on it but not really taking on the significance of it, like the Vietnam War, um, uh, uh, there's the uh, Gloria Steinem, that's her name. She's on TV and the father's like, mm. why is she on television? <laughs> yes. you know, Because um, it's through the perspective of a b- young boy. Yeah, and, and I love that. And I think too. that's really smart. I thought it was really yeah. smart too because he's. it's not – like defensive or like he it's it's not self it's not posturing or defensive um you know he's he's acknowledging his his middle classness his um mm-hmm. privilege as well growing up in that sort of white society there's a there's a point where he has this realization that there are no people of color at NASA where his dad works and he's like oh he sort of questions it but then quickly moves on um so it's sort of I like the way Linklater has a Linklater sorry has a light touch to that to those sort of heavy issues he's acknowledging that this is just a very specific um uh, snapshot of of a time and a place uh and a class and and i and i I appreciated that as well i i really also liked jack black's voiceover he's not playing a character or doing a bit it's very natural um and it does have a little bit of insight he does sort of go why did we do that why did dad take the tabs off his can of beer and put them back in the tin you know he questions these things um and ruminates on them but then quickly moves on and like you know i was a bit weary because will this was your pick and i thought oh god i don't know if i could sit through another rotoscope film i think i'm done with rotoscope um (laughs) because the what because it's so jerky i don't know i think like i think it just suited when waking life came out uh, even a scanner darkly Linklater's earlier rotoscope films i thought that they were wonderful but i was much younger than i was at film school and i was (laughs) i was like um i think i was sort of enamored by the the technical craftsmanship and uh, and that it was really progressive at the time and now i thought oh haven't we moved on from this surely in the world of cgi we have a little because this was this was part rotoscope and part i think 
some pretty uninspired CGI backgrounds. There was. It, it too, felt yes. unfinished in, in, in some way. Well, see, I didn't mind it because I thought with like a waking life, it was very dreamy which let, and Scanner Darkly had this sort of paranoid vibe to it too. Um, but that was also to do with the, the paint, the painterly aspect of it, whereas this is much more hard-edged. Mm. And it, to me, it gave more of a, a hyper-realism to the quality to the film, which I actually actually got into, I think, you know, about a third of the way. And I was like, actually, I'm digging this, you know. like I, I, And I like the way he sort of makes the mundane uh, extraordinary, you know, and he's got this sort of um, very uh, average middle-class life happening set against the backdrop of the space race, which is the most extraordinary thing. And I think that that's kind of cool, like how he sort of bookends this film with – Going to the moon. I think that that was kind of amazing. I was very surprised that that was only bookends, though. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't know. Just setting up that story and then not really cashing in on that promise. I did. Yeah, a missed I, opportunity. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I just, yeah, I still don't know how I feel about that, but I, I get why he did it that way. It was this boy's fantasy that sort of triggered mm. off um, a, a nostalgic look into the past and a time of innocence, I suppose. I, it was funny you mentioned um, cleaning your feet with um, petrol um, before because that was in reference to oil spills that were happening. Was mm. it off the Gulf of Mexico or something? Yeah, I think it must have been, yeah. <laughs> and he was just yeah. talking, again, like you said, Stu, just in this matter-of-fact way, oh, and the oil spills were, were hap- happening yeah. off the coast. Yeah. So when you get in from the beach, you'd have to clean off the, the black um, oil spots from your feet ah, with, with petrol. Yeah. Tar. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I... I, I um, I enjoyed all that sort of, um, yeah, I don't know, background sort of information happening with without, you know, too much concern about what the bigger story was there. It was just told through this really innocent way. But it also, for me, you know, thinking about climate change and these other films we've discussed tonight, if you look at it through that lens, I feel like the 60s was really the time that kind of set us on this downward spiral um, for destruction, you know, where we're sort of um, this mass consumerism and excess that was going on with no sort of thought for the future. Um, mm. And so, it, yeah, it can only be told in this um, very innocent, um, nostalgic way, I suppose. I don't know. I, I enjoyed that, that aspect of it. But also simultaneously, the 60s was this period of such massive social upheaval as well. So it's interesting that these two kind of like one really progressive element and one really regressive element are kind of happening simultaneously. Um, One element that I was a bit disappointed in was how the moon sequence or the space sequences weren't really beautiful to look at. Like it was just... It was quite dull. Like I'm thinking of so many um, space films that are kind of building up to that, you know, the landing on the moon and building up to that kind of being out of space. If you're going to animate a film about going to the moon, you can really Mm. go wild and it's surprising. Go nuts. And I just found it really uninspiring, Um, which maybe is the point. Like maybe it's the little moments on, on Earth that are more beautiful. Um, but I'm not sure if that was the intended effect. <laughs> did you see, did either of you see Apollo 11, the documentary from about two or three years ago? No, no um, I didn't. It's incredible. <clears throat> it's, a, um, it's, it's a blow-by-blow account of, of the, uh, the launch of Apollo 11 with amazing 35mm footage all the way through, much of which has never been seen. They just kept it in a, it was in the can just in an archive somewhere. And um, it's all been thoroughly uh, charted and 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 put in put in order, and it's just a blow by blow documentary with no narration, 
Um, and there's so much amazing footage in there. So, yeah, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. I'm but go and see that film because that's very good. I'm, if, you can, if you can track it down. I'm forgetting the um, film's name, but there's the Apollo film um, starring Ryan Gosling, I think, where he's the astronaut going to the moon landing. And oh, I just remember... Yeah. Being in that, being in the movie theater, and sort of the the ratio changing, and just this moment of amazement um, at that sort of moonwalking moment. First um, man, the name, first man. That's it. Damien um, Chazelle, yeah, yeah. That that was incredible. That scene, and I just remember being a bit let down. Where, yeah, this scene. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 